Hey there, welcome to ATL in 29, the podcast that looks at the NBA from the starting point of Atlanta. My name is Kevin Chenard, and today we're here to talk Hawks and Bucks and Box and three-point shots with Adam McGee of Behind the Buck Pass. Welcome, Adam. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me back. I'm always very excited to talk box. I think generally there isn't enough box talk, and at the moment we've probably got more reasons than ever to to have those kind of conversations, so I'm delighted to be back. We did, yeah. So um, did you get a chance to watch the Bucks bulls preseason opener for the Bucks last night? I did. It was very, very refreshing. Um <laughs> I'm maybe a little bit more tempered. I think there's a, there is still a work in progress that's to be expected with a new coach and new systems on both sides. But I think the the sense of excitement overall from Bucks fans is very evident in comparing what a, a Mike Budenholzer team looks like to what they've been used to with Jason Kidd and Joe Prunty and all of that chaos in the last few years. So there was something very refreshing and positive and the early signs are good. Yeah, it's funny that you say that because Prunty and, and Bud come out of the same Spurs tree and were together for a decent amount of time in San Antonio, but I would imagine that their offense is at least the one that, that started under Kid. It looks a lot different than than the way Bud's did last night. Yes, very, very <laughs> different. Um, I think I think it's fair to bring that up because there's something of Prunty's offense that at times was... Very reminiscent of the offense of the Spurs team he was involved in all those years ago. I think in some ways that was the problem. Um, His offense maybe didn't evolve along the way like Bud's very clearly did. I think that's one of Bud's greatest strengths is he took the core principles of what they did in San Antonio under Pop. But he's kind of continued to push that forward and obviously did a great job of that with the Hawks and allowed the team to evolve and the style to evolve along the way. But yeah, it's... For the connection that was there between those two guys, it was a, a notable change already. And over the course of the season, we'd only expect that to grow even greater. Speaking of evolution, that kind of brings us back to the topic I wanted to talk about, which was three-point shooting. If my recollection serves me, the Bucks attempted 45 three-pointers last night. That's right. That that seems like Bud pushing the envelope because, it, I, you know... The Hawks usually were kind of forward in the number of threes that they took, but they were never that forward. I think you know you're seeing even now a little bit more evolution in that idea from him because 45 is a lot, and oh my goodness, you know, I don't even know how much that is the Bucks and how much of that is the Bulls. And any defense centered around Zach Levine and Jabari Parker is going to suffer. They they yeah. are not good. They were not good, and I don't expect them to be good at, <laughs> at any point in the season, really, on that end. I, I do think a lot of it was the books, though, and a lot of it was Bud. Like, you mentioned the 45 attempts. Mm-hmm. Um, Matt Velasquez of the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel had a great detail in his article on the game. It's at least going back to 1983. It's the most three-pointers the books would have attempted in any regular season game. So for this to come in, um, the first game of preseason under Bud is pretty interesting. I don't know if that's sustainable. I mean, that would put them right up around the Rockets' pace um, last year. But certainly it was interesting. And even the kind of guys who were taking them, it maybe wasn't as extreme to begin with. 
we didn't get the maybe John Henson throwing up a lot of trees, the kind of the kind of profile of players that we'll probably talk about and how Bud tries to work them into to spacing the floor a little bit more often. But even someone like Eric Bledsoe, who traditionally hasn't been the greatest shooter, looking really confident and letting fly. And then on the other hand, you have someone like Pat Connaughton, who maybe is underachieved for his career up to this point. But is the kind of shooter that you feel like over the years Bud has done a really good job of utilizing and drawing up specialist sets and having his players understand their movement, their positioning. He looked really, really good. He only played just under 15 minutes, but he was four or six from three and just looked really sharp. He was getting to all the spots that Bud will want his players to get to. Not necessarily true of all the books just yet, but really, really encouraging start overall. Yeah, Connor, and I watched a lot of him when he was at Notre Dame, and I mean, I... He's not big, um, but he's a really good athlete and a really good shooter, and I could see him fitting well there. So what what were the Bucks doing to generate that number of three-pointers? I think the biggest thing, and maybe it was under-discussed under Kid, but for me it was always one of the most um, noticeable and pressing things. Perhaps that comes from the years I had of watching Bud's Hawks teams, but the Bucks traditionally were very static in terms of body movement, in terms of players actually moving off the ball. Okay. Um, they, they were a good passing team. They were generally pretty unselfish and ranked among the top assist teams throughout Jason Kidd's tenure. But those assists weren't coming in a very fluid, free-flowing way. So there weren't a whole lot of avenues to really create space. Obviously, on top of that, you had a lot of players who wanted to drive the ball and uh, we'll say a tendency from even some of the shooters to just collapse a little bit too close in to clog the paint up for guys like Yanis and Bledsoe and really reduce the spacing. What was evident was there was real discipline in terms of camping out around the perimeter. They were even talking on the broadcast, Jim Paschke and Marcus Johnson, about Bud has a real emphasis with this Bucks team. He wants them to run the sidelines rather than coming, say, from the center of the floor out to the corners. He wants them to run the sidelines and really maximize all of the space. And for the most part, it seemed like all of the guys were getting that straight away. And then there was good off-ball movement, even from some of the bigs. John Henson only played 10 minutes, but although he wasn't spacing the floor with his shooting, something which the prospect of him doing so is terrifying, but may become a reality, he was making some nice cuts and some nice moves along the baseline that was just kind of feeding into a more intelligent and more free-flowing brand of offense than what the books have showed in recent years. And it was creating looks. And then, of course, the other part of it, as you mentioned to begin with, is, I mean, Giannis, had, there was a great example. Giannis made a, a, a really nice pull-up tree, but Jabari was defending him, and Jabari gave him plenty of space and plenty of time. So it was kind of like, hey, why not? And there would have been plenty of instances where the Bulls did allow him some time and space, but the books were creating that with their own movements too. And Henson was causing havoc for the Bulls on defense too. I mean, he was he was eating up shots from Chicago. Um, he did it. He did a really nice job. He, he looked good. He had a great, uh, we'll say, two three minute salvo where he had his three blocks in there in a very short spell of time. And Henson's really interesting. There's been this this kind of conversation since Bud was hired, and it's something that Hawks fans would probably have a a greater grasp on it. I think a lot of books fans and even a lot of people who wouldn't have watched the Hawks very regularly over the years have a very set idea of Bud's defense. 
where I think most Hawks fans will know that there have been different iterations, different variations along the way. And with Henson, there was this kind of idea of, well, will there be times where Bud encourages them to kind of funnel everything towards him a little bit more like he did during Dwight Howard's time with the Hawks? And we actually saw a little burst of that in Henson's time on the floor, and he did really, really well in that span. So there's kind of an interesting mix of big men that Bud has to play with that will give him all sorts of options to really run versions of different things that he had success with during his time with the Hawks. You mentioned before that that the Bucks were collapsing the paint. How and who are they using to do that? Are they are they using Giannis? Are they using Bledsoe? Were they using a screen? Were they were they just kind of letting them go in isolation to do it? Was it a post up? You know, what what sorts of things were they using to collapse the defense? And and who was responsible for? handling in the ball in those situations mostly or what was the breakdown like percentage wise um i feel like there was probably a pretty even mix between Giannis and bledsoe bledsoe was given a lot of freedom to play and bledsoe played really really well which i think would be a a welcome uh, sight for books fans considering how bad he was in the playoffs and that really left a, a sour taste for a lot of people so having a really encouraging start was good for him um, one of the, one of the elements that stands out on that front, though, is again, I guess, talking about things that have changed. Brooke Lopez set some really nice screens in his time on the floor, and there were some great examples of really the gravity that that he's just going to provide the books and how he's going to pull guys out of position. Um, it, one of the very first plays of the game, um, he actually duped his brother Robin into a pump fake in the corner and then put the ball <laughs> on the floor and put Jabari on a poster. And that's the kind of thing that the Bucks just wouldn't have had an option with with a big man before. And with that, he also has real size, real legitimate strength and size, something the Bucks have struggled to get at center. Um, Greg Monroe gave them some of that, but couldn't offer the spacing. So Lopez's screens were very effective in terms of freeing guys up, getting Bulls defenders caught behind screens and creating that little bit of extra space. But in terms of playmaking, I think there was a nice even mix and um, one thing that was maybe noticeable, a little bit less from Chris Middleton in that front than we would have had in the past. But that may not be a bad thing to free him up to focus on being the the highly efficient scorer that he generally has been throughout his career. It, it's interesting. You know, I was looking at just the, the Bucks roster side by side, what they had last year versus what they have this year. And, you know... I'm a huge Giannis fan. I think he can do so much. And, and Chris Middleton was outstanding last season too. But that roster got really shallow really quickly, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I, I think it's very true. I think the big thing that for a lot of people, it depends on, I think it depends on how often people had watched Jabari Parker and how much they were really aware of what Jabari Parker was in the NBA versus what his reputation may have been. Right. is Jabari was obviously the big outgoing. The difference, though, in adding Ursan, obviously, who all Hawks fans, again, would be familiar with, <laughs> Brooke Lopez, um, Pat Connaughton as well, that those kind of moves, maybe Jabari, it's not even a maybe, at the, at the top end of his talent on his best night, he is better than those guys, but the books were in a position where they needed... They needed three guys rather than one guy, I think is the best way of putting it, to just give them that little bit extra depth because 
They have the star power at the top end of the roster. They were just really getting exposed beyond that. Now, there's still going to be elements of where they could be found out in that regard, and it's going to depend on guys who've been underachieving for a little while, finding their footing and doing that again. I mean, Tony Snell is one of the players that Bucks fans have pinned a lot of their hopes on in terms of what Bud can do for a player in his mold or his style. Mm-hmm. It's generally the profile of player that Bud and the staff had so much success developing in Atlanta, yet he was 0-4 from the field last night. He was the only player to fail to score, and he looked pretty passive, which was the big issue with him last year. Matthew Delvadova uh, was a DMP coach's decision, and... You know, the Bucks just need something steady from, from Delhi, really. Um, those two guys, more than anything, it is their salary that dictates that. But if you could get them giving really solid, consistent minutes, and then you have the additions you have, you're right. All of a sudden, the depth this year compared to last year is a really marked difference, and it could be a real game changer for the Bucks. Yeah, I was just, I was kind of lining them up player by player, and, you know, guys like Brooke Lopez and Urson. You know, they could be, you know, if you put them on last year's roster, they might have been the third or fourth best players. And, you know, if you can do that, and if somehow Bud figures out how to unlock Eric Bledsoe, that's that's going to be a, a, a big game changer for them for having depth and not relying on Giannis as much. I mean, obviously their season begins and ends with Giannis, but in terms of, you know, having enough balance that teams can't worry just about Giannis. If, if they go five deep like that, it's interesting. And and the other thing about Lopez and Urson that I think is interesting is it gives them the option of spacing the floor by going big. You know, they can... They can well, we, saw, we actually saw some of that last night because Giannis was playing small forward, which he hasn't done years for a spell because Urson and Lopez were... At the four and five. And Giannis is the only non-shooter on the court. So you can have lineups like that. So you're right. And that that is something that's very interesting. And is not entirely a unique look. But it is something a little bit different. Like the, I guess the Sixers maybe one of the few teams they could come up against. Who can really turn to something like that. Um, and it will be interesting to see how that turns out. The other key part of it though is. You're right in saying so much of the season starts and ends with Giannis. You could probably add Chris Middleton into that. The problem last year without having any real depth was those guys were just getting played way, way too much. Um, They're now kind of two to three seasons where both of them have just been consistently in the kind of top five, top ten in minutes played in the NBA. That is not sustainable. It's certainly not what you want to do with Giannis at this point in his career. So having just a bit more of a safety net where some of those guys can just, if it's an extra minute here, an extra two minutes there, where Giannis can get some more rest, where if a game looks like it's wrapped up, you can put the reserves in and all of a sudden you're not ending up in a position where you have to bring the starters back in because they've blown the lead. Things like that could make a really big difference and particularly come playoff time because as well as Giannis played last year and the year before, he looked visibly tired on both occasions. He improved in that regard last year, but there was a real sense of, okay, he's got a lot of miles on the clock at this point, and they maybe didn't have the extra gear that he could bring if they had had other players to take some of the load off during the season. Yeah, and we mentioned Bud coming from the Spurs tree before. You know, that's one of the things that 
he's pretty good about. Um, you know, he doesn't typically run his players into the ground. He's pretty conscious of of you know minutes and workloads. And I don't know if he's going to have. I'm, I'm assuming he'll have sort of the same technology that he had when he was here in terms of you know biomechanical tracking and trying to figure out how how tired guys are but uh, I think he listens and pays attention to that and will be good in that regard it's already notable and um kind of generally I think books fans have found it quite funny but the players are talking a lot about you know how different practices Chris Middleton keeps talking about it how it's just kind of get in and out, do your work, and then Bud is literally telling them to put their feet up. It's about rests, where Jason Kidd was very well known for long, grueling practice sessions, and if anything went wrong during the course of the season, everyone would be in for a long session. It's a very different approach at Bud, and obviously there's the individual focus to to their work and practice, but I, I think even the balance on that side of the workload is something that the books players already are kind of going, oh, this is different, and it seems to be lifting the mood because there was probably an element of the being overworked at times under kid. Yeah, and just on the opposite side of that, after the Bulls lost last night, Fred Hoiberg came out and said that tomorrow's practice is going to be a a whiz bang, work them till they're dog tired. <laughs> Not the practice. best idea when you've just tied up a lot of money in Zach Levine and Jabari Parker. <laughs> It's like, hmm, yeah, the, uh, yeah, okay. Enough about this is not a Bulls podcast today, so I'm <laughs> not going to get bogged down in that. But yes, okay, they did that. All right, so <clears throat> I wanted to talk also about you know the two teams and their approaches to offenses, that being the Hawks and the Bucks, and three point shooting. And so you know, coming into the season, I was asking Alex Lynn; he seemed like a candidate for it. If if he was going to be shooting three pointers this season, and this is what he told me, are you shooting threes this season? Yes, sir. Yeah, uh, been shooting a lot of corn threes, uh, a few transition ones, but I think the corn three, I feel really confident and more comfortable shooting the corn three right now. Okay, so I mean, I feel like of all the Hawks bigs, other than Deadman, who's not healthy at the moment, Len Len is going to be the one to shoot three pointers. I think officially he took one in his first preseason game, but in reality he tried to take two and got his toe on the line for one of them. He is a very interesting swing for the Hawks to take. I am not convinced on the idea of him becoming a shooter, even a comfortable shooter. He does mention, oh, he did it in high school, he did it in college. Um, we see that doesn't even necessarily translate to the NBA with good shooters, let alone players who maybe aren't quite as accustomed to doing so. But when you look at the Suns, I, the Suns have been so dysfunctional and have gone through so many coaches in recent years that there is that element of some of their, some of their young and high draft picks that haven't worked out. What might the untapped potential be there? And what can a, a more patient, maybe a more structured or diligent, a more coherent, consistent approach to their development do for them. Len is very, very interesting in that front because he was always a player who looked like he could do certain things and never really managed to do them. I know he has had some injury issues and he kind of has some of those question marks hanging over him longer term. I mean, it's very much like what Bud is 
saying he's going to preach now with the books, which is this idea, which is probably for the best of, we want them to space the floor. We want to give them the freedom to shoot. And I think that's, that's gotta be the baseline. If, if they can give him the freedom to shoot and he can build up confidence or there's some practice and over time that becomes a threat. We've seen this. Bigs don't really need to make shots. <laughs> there, there, there is an element of if you just get out there and take shots, teams will, they will now respect that. It's, it's an interesting change from maybe even five or six years ago where you would have had to make some shots for that to become a factor. It doesn't feel like that's the case anymore. If you take them, teams are going to go, okay, maybe this guy can make them. Yeah, and I think for Len, it's going to build gradually. Like, I think he'll be taking them right off the bat from the start of the season, but I think his initial focus will just be those corner threes. And he's pretty good at them. I mean, his his form is good. I was watching him in practice yesterday, and they were doing the drill where they take ten threes at, like, each of the five spots going around. And I was I didn't... I was trying to look at a bunch of people at the same time, so I didn't get to sit there and focus on him for all 50 shots, but I watched the 10 that he took in each corner, and he made 17 out of 20. And I was like, that's pretty good. <laughs> I mean, it's different when you're wide open and you're just taking shot after shot after shot, but, I mean, clearly there's some potential in him to, to do well at that shot. I'm not yeah. sure, on the other hand, and I, and I spoke to him about it, that Miles Plumley is on the same track <laughs> Um, and we'll get to, to Plumley and Bud in a minute. Um, but here, here's what Plumley said when I asked him about taking threes. Is that something that's going to happen this season? Uh, I believe so. You know, it's not something that I'm worried about initially. But, uh, you know, I've improved a lot this summer. And I think, uh, especially in our offense, you know, everyone has to be able to kind of do a little bit of everything. So, um, yeah, down the road, I think I will. Is there a conversation that you have with Coach or somebody else in in the decision-making process, like that's something you should practice over the summer or get ready for? or I mean, just watching the way the NBA is changing as a player, like if you want to maximize your career, you know, you might be able to jump like I do forever. So I've been working <laughs> on it regardless of what they say. But, um, you know, the way we play, like I said, gives a lot of guys opportunities, you know, even to step in and shoot corner threes. But, you know, until I show them that I'm hitting a certain percentage in our drills, you know, it's just a numbers game. When you get there, improve it up, you know, they give you the opportunity. So I'm excited. Okay, so I think, you know, I think Plumlee's probably further behind in his three-point shot than, than Len is. In fact, you know, if you look at the Hawks, probably somebody like Alex Poitras is going to get used more than Plumlee, and part of that is because he probably can make and take three-point shots better than, than, than Plumlee can, but, um, you know, he he's still taking him in practice nonetheless. It, I, I would say when you watch Plumlee, there's a little bit of a hitch in his shot. Um, it doesn't quite look smooth and seamless as it does with some of the other shooters but if we flip it what do you think that the, the bucks are going to get out of someone like john henson is he really going to be a three-point shooter because to me you know watching him when he came in the league you know he would shoot hook shots from for most of his offense his free throw shooting and almost looked like he was shooting with the wrong hand or something and he was making like 40 or 50 percent of his free throws and, and now he's he's you know a few years in is he really ready to be a three-point shooter I think the simple answer is no, and I think it kind of applies for Plumlee too. Um, like there, there is always that element of 
if a guy has a solid mid-range jumper, if, if even if it's a free throw line jumper, you always feel like, okay, well, maybe that range can be gradually extended out. And Henson doesn't have that, and Plumlee hasn't really had that throughout his career either. So I think they are two real challenges um, for the respective coaches to try and to try and get to play in that style. And the Bucks did have an open scrimmage on Saturday, which was predictably very loose and involved plenty of John Henson three-pointers. The couple I saw were, yeah, exactly how you'd expect them to be. <laughs> I, I don't know how much we're going to see that translate. And I was a little relieved to see him play really well without going to that in the first preseason game because they're... There may just be an element of Bud and the staff and Henson with them. They have a, they have something of a period of a mutual feeling out where they're trying to figure out, okay, well, how exactly do we fit with each other here? Mm-hmm. And the the initial kind of reaction might be, okay, well, let's go out of our way to adjust to each other, where there might be a compromise down the line that really works well for both parties. I don't think it would be a bad idea to get Henson more comfortable with his shot, but considering just how much of an adventure his mid-range jumpers have been, um, (laughs) I think pushing that out beyond the arc, that's tough. Again, much like what you said about Len, if it turns out to be that he, you know, pulls out to the corner and he has shots from the corner... Why not? I mean, it's it's a very, very makeable shot. It's one of the more efficient shots, the most efficient shot in the game, really. It's worth trying. It's not that different from where he would occasionally take his mid-range jumpers. I don't really want to see John Henson at the top of the key, though, or um, transition possessions ending with, like, trailing John Henson three-pointers. <laughs> I don't think that's the greatest idea. So I'd... I'd expect this is the kind of year where, look, we all know, um, media day, training camp, preseason, this is the time for big ideas and big goals and everything is very um, aspirational. I think there will be more of a settling in and a compromise that kind of grounds itself more in reality for all parties. And it then becomes about, okay, well, how do we best mesh? Rather than trying to go the way, how can I contribute to this? And I think that will be seen on both sides. Plumley, Plumley with the Hawks is a tough one. I mean, Plumley's last few years are incredibly grim, really, ever since he was signed to his big money contract by the Bucks. By the Bucks, thank you. By the Bucks. Oh, I'm I'm happy to add that in there now that I don't have to cover that contract. I don't have to worry about the the cap uh, ramifications of that contract, but. He did somewhat earn that shot. The books um, didn't wait for leverage from anyone else, which may be maybe of interest to Hawks fans now that the contract is theirs. Um, they didn't receive any offer sheets that they had to match. Plumlee was a restricted free agent, and to everyone's surprise, they rushed out and tied him up to this big deal. But part of that was they just found a way where he did mesh, and he was very important for chemistry within what the books were doing. He, at the time, was a really good rim runner, um, he was setting great screens and he was enabling a lot of the more positive things that happened around the the first time Yanis was given a point Yanis role. And Plummy has has Yanis and his uh, final two, three months of that season to tank for that big contract because it was really 
the Bucks' best player kicked on to a level that hadn't been seen before, and the front office were probably left with, wow, is, is Miles Plumley really a big part of this? I don't know if he's really ever been healthy, if he's really ever managed to be in quite the shape he was since then. And it all just doesn't quite seem like it's clicking in. But Plumley is an interesting player, and he can be a positive influence on team chemistry on the court if the Hawks can get that right this year. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if the Hawks have a role for him this season. If if Deadman is healthy, I think it, it gets kind of tight for him. He's I I you mentioned you know being in shape. I think he's in a, he's a phenomenal athlete and he's in phenomenal shape. I don't I don't think that's necessarily a consideration. You know, he's not great with his hands necessarily, and I don't know that he always has the greatest basketball feel for where he's supposed to be and what he's supposed to do. But like you said, he sets really good picks he's he's a pretty good rim roller and, and you know he has incredible elevation so he can put pressure on the rim because he's such a good athlete but uh you know one of the reasons i was surprised to hear about the the john henson might be shooting threes experiment is because last season on the day that we found out that deadman was going to shoot threes you know we walked into the gym De- there deadman is shooting threes and we asked deadman are you going to shoot threes this season he's like yep i'm shooting threes this season i talked about it with the coaches and and that's what they want me to do and you know a year later that we know that he did a really good job of it later that that same media session i asked bud about Plumley, who wasn't in the gym that day because he was hurt. And I said, is Plumley going to shoot threes? And here's what he said. We haven't seen Miles the last couple of games because of injury. Is that something where he's going to be like Dwayne and surprise us and be shooting corner threes? Or No, no that's not his thing. <laughs> okay, I, 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 no, I, know, I, I respect that. Yeah. So. <laughs> res- yeah, no, it's... That's no, no. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. So Bud shut that down pretty quickly. I I think he did so wisely. Um, I don't... There is an element to this, though. I'm trying to think how much Bud has talked recently about Henson shooting trees compared to how much Henson has talked about Henson <laughs> shooting trees. Um, that could play a factor in this. I think if you ask Bud how much he wants Henson to shoot trees, you might get a very different answer to ask Henson if he's willing to shoot more trees. And that could be some of what we're hearing, seeing so far. I think, look, they want guys to shoot... And they've made that clear. And I think as as almost a more general thing, they don't want to restrict anyone from shooting, particularly with the book's history in that area um, of having a coach who forbade certain players from taking three pointers. I think the, the feeling probably in Milwaukee at the moment is, OK, we just need to get this whole team more comfortable, more confident. If that includes John Henson taking some trees, and it kind of gets the whole feel and understanding of the concepts working a little bit quicker for the team, well then, you know, that's okay, that's great. In a more specific sense, though, Henson shooting trees, I don't know. I don't know how much we're going to see. I think they're just very aware of they want to promote three-point shooting, they want to promote spacing, and they don't want to push anyone away from it. And I think the, the interesting thing, because the books have been, I mean, widely regarded hasn't always necessarily been quite as true, but widely regarded as a very poor three-point shooting team for a number of years. When you do look down your roster, like we're like we we're talking about earlier, the roster now is very, very well equipped to shoot the tree. Oh, sure. Uh, you know, across across the big guys too, and even the guys we don't know how the training camp battle is going to really kind of 
pan out, but there's really only Henson that stands out as you really can't imagine him doing that. Um, Giannis and Bledsoe have work to do, but otherwise there's guys who at least should be good shooters or have had good seasons in the NBA and college that could be even better. There's an interesting mix. So I think with the books, it's it's very much a philosophical, you know, we want to shoot trees. And I, I just think it's, we're not going to draw the line at anyone because if we do everything else right and create a good shot and the ball moves and players are in their spots and it ends with John Henson, okay, we'll take that because we're doing the right things and the next time it might end up with Chris Middleton or Pat Connaughton or someone like that. I think one of the, the distinctions, at least from the Hawks side, I've, I've heard Lloyd Pierce you know, differentiate some of the three-point shots based on the shot clock. And it, you know, basically saying that, you know, if you're open and you get, you know, you're at the three-point line and you get the ball with eight seconds left or six seconds left on the shot clock, you know, and you're a big who's semi-competent at shooting threes, that's when he wants you to shoot it. Like you, like you mentioned before, some of these guys, you don't want them coming down and trying to hit the trail in the fast break three. So, I mean, a lot of it's situational and based on the shot clock. And I, I think that's one of the big differences we're going to see between the Hawks' offense and the Bucks' offense this season. Bud always preached pace and space, pace and space, pace and space. And he certainly believes in that. But I think people misidentify what he means by pace. Typically, Budenholzer's offenses have not been... among the more prolific fast break teams. You know, he, he wants to push the ball, but it's more of a context of push it, you know, get the defense on its heels, mismatched, and see what you can take advantage of. Um, you know, three or four years ago when the Hawks were at their best, you know, those offenses were so good and, and some of those teams led by Teague but they would rack up, you know, a lot of shot clock violations because they were just probing, probing, probing for a way to get a good shot. Um, and so you, you know, you look at the the Hawks and the Bucks. Lloyd Pierce has his four point line out on the floor, and that's a reminder to for the guys to space. Budenholzer has like little blue blocks at like each of the five points around the three point line as a reminder of how to space the floor. But I think the paces are going to be different. Um, what we saw from Pierce in the first preseason game was they want to go. <laughs> they want to go and they want to attack a defense before it sets up. But I think they want to get the shot in those first few seconds as opposed to just exploiting the mismatches and the unset defense and probing it for a while, which is what I expect more out of the, the Budenholzer offense. Well, honestly, I was a little surprised in the game against the Bulls at how quick the books were getting their shots off now again this may just be part of the learning experience and it is kind of getting a handle on okay exactly what way do we want to play quicker and there were some shots that i wouldn't have called ideal some three pointers that went up very very quickly in the shot clock and from good shooters too and with some space that maybe you'd say okay they're fine and um, but it was noticeable you're right it's not necessarily transition it's say off an opponent's made basket 
the books were really working to get that out quick. Now, all of this may be very exaggerated at the moment as Bud just wants to get the kind of basics instilled in the team. And it'll be tailored back over time. But they they were playing a lot of possessions much, much more rapidly than usual, looking to get the shot off quicker. And I do agree with you. I think in the, the bigger picture, that won't hold true because when you've got a player like Giannis, you've got a player like Chris Middleton. I mean, both of those guys are pretty good, very good isolation players. The The interesting thing is how Bud can kind of work that element into the, the core kind of elements of his offense traditionally because he hasn't had a player like Giannis. Exactly. I don't. I don't even think he's had a player like Chris Middleton with the way Chris Middleton likes to score. So if he if he had a really had Joe Johnson for any length of time, um, he may have had some idea of what that was like. But the the way their tenures were uh, split meant that was never really something that he had to worry about. Um, but I think that's that's the challenge, and certainly in the possessions where they get it to get it to Giannis, they get it to Chris. And Bledsoe, too, because Bledsoe's going to look to drive. They may slow it down a little bit. But, for example, I think if they if they find Malcolm Brogdon early in the shot clock with a bit of space in the perimeter, I think he's going to let fly. So there may be a mix of that. Maybe there's some kind of false signals or even some confusion on their own part at the moment as they continue to get used to things. But there was a there particularly early in the game against the Bulls in the first quarter they really kind of came out of the traps fast and were looking to get shots up really quickly, which I don't think suits the books in the grander scheme of things. So there will probably be something somewhere in between that ends up settling where, as you said, for the Hawks, it will likely be much more in their interest to really press and kind of focus just to, to get your shots in when you can. And maybe as is often the case with rebuilding and young teams, get as many shots in as possible. I mean, that that may be key sometimes. I know Lloyd Pierce is primarily a defensive-minded coach. That's where his reputation has come from, and he has a stellar reputation on, on that front. But when you look at some of the personnel he's got to deal with, there is going to be an element of, you know, the Hawks are going to have to try to outscore teams on certain nights. Yeah. it. You mentioned, you know, he hasn't really had a a player like Chris Middleton before. I kind of agree with you. I think if you probably had to to pick someone, the the player that he's had that's most like Chris Middleton would be someone like Torian Prince, especially at the end of the season last season, kind of playing a similar sort of game. But he's never had anyone like Giannis. And that may be the reason that they do play a little faster this season is just because if you run the floor looking for an advantage and a good advantage, uh, uh, an advantage that's really one worth taking advantage of, you know, with some of his previous teams, it might have taken a while to get that. With Giannis, you get an advantage really early. I mean, if he's in the middle of the lane on the fast break and you don't have two or three people there, that's already your advantage. And if you do have two or three people, that means somebody else is open on the perimeter. So the edge, you know, those little competitive edges that you might be looking for in transition, they might come a little bit more quickly just because of Giannis. I agree, and I think Bud, Bud has had experience with really good transition bigs, but in a very different way. For example, Al Horford and Paul Millsap, they could take the ball, grab the rebound, take the ball, and go. 
But part of that was they were both great passers and really smart playmakers who would find the runners. If you had guys run to the corners, it was Kyle Corver for a lot of their time, they'd find them. Right. He hasn't necessarily had a bigger player who will get the rebound and can go and can cover the distance of the court in four strides and in a blink of an eye, you've got two points on the board. So that is, and I mean, that that's going to be fun and interesting to watch. Maybe that presents more challenges for Bud than any of us anticipate. I mean, Yanis was definitely one of the players who looked like he was still wrestling and figuring out exactly where he should be, what he should do. Um, but being Yanis, I mean, he had 19 points, 13 rebounds and five assists in 22 minutes <laughs> within that. So there is probably a, a situation where if everything clicks into place for Yanis and the books, I mean... I don't know what the limit is on what he can achieve. I know it's early, but where do you think the, the Bucks finish in the East this year? I think they'll have home court in the playoffs. I I think they're being overlooked as a potential candidate to go even a little bit better than that. Personally, I think there is going to be a period of adjustment and they, they won't be at their best early on. It will be a, a major improvement, which will probably trill Bucks fans compared to what they've watched over the last couple of years. But my expectation is that by, we'll say, post-All-Star break, this team really looks like a, a Coach Bud team. And it's mixed with all the best of what the Bucks had going for them before that. And that the Bucks really might hit their stride in the playoffs this year which would make for a very welcome change from previous years. I think the drought, in terms of going all the way back to 2001, since the Bucks last won a playoff series, I, I fully expect that to come to an end this year. And I don't think any team in the East will want to play the Bucks in the postseason. I, anything is in play. I think the East is wide open. The Celtics are the best team, probably. The Raptors will be very good. The Sixers should be good. The Pacers behind that, I'd expect to be very good, too. Um, the Bucks may well have the best player of that whole bunch, though. So I don't I don't know if they have a whole lot to fear. And I think, if anything, other teams will be very interested to watch how quickly they kind of integrate into what Bud has done. Because if I was a coach and executive of one of their rivals, that isn't the most thrilling prospect, the idea of the books finally figuring a lot of the stuff out that was basic and they had overlooked in recent years and finding that extra gear that everyone really expects them to have and expects them to be able to move to. Awesome. Do you have anything you want to plug? Uh, not really. Just all of our books content. If you want my writing and the rest of our great team behind book pass, you can check out all of our work there every single day, 365 days of the year. Um, Otherwise, you can listen to our podcast, Win in Six podcast, for all your books, talk, or you can find me on Twitter at AdamMcGee11. All right. Thank you, sir. Enjoy the season. Thanks for having me. Hope you enjoy it, too. All right. Thank you, sir. No problem. Enjoyed it. You're, uh, you're slick. You're, you're, you're a podcast pro. Oh, I've I've done a lot of these at this point. Um, it's fun. Host, hosting is the more difficult part. So it's nice. It's I don't I don't very often go on other podcasts. I it, more as a time thing than anything else. Even when people ask me, but it's always nice to get on 
someone else's podcast as a guest because the hosting is where the work is really done. <laughs> well, I, hopefully I'll get this up in a little bit and uh, get it out there. It's, it was a pleasure talking to you, sir. Right. Likewise. Thanks again. All right. Have a good one. You too.